Hello and welcome to Cage Club, two fans, 75 movies, one cage. Today's movie is Knowing from 2009. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And for a movie about Cage the Professor, we call on our resident professor, Tobin Addington. Hello, Tobin. Hey, guys. Uh, glad to be here. So this is a movie that you wanted to do just because, quote, he's a professor, duh, is what you wrote to us, I think. <laughs> and so had you seen this movie before, or was this one that you just wanted to talk about that you were sort of interested in? No, I mean, bottom line, I just like talking to you guys about movies. Um, <laughs> but no, I'd not seen this before, and I knew, I knew virtually nothing about it. And so, yeah, I thought, I thought it'd be fun to tackle something new and um, see what we could find. Mike and I just recorded the podcast episode for Next a couple movies ago, and what's weird is that Cage, for the most part in his career, has steered away from a couple genres, and one of those genres is sci-fi. I don't think he does any more really after this or before this, but in a span of about four or five movies in about two years... He does two pretty hardcore sci-fi movies. Thankful for that as well. <laughs> When's he going to get around to doing a Western for me? Ah, my fingers are so crossed every day. I mean, he really goes for it in this one, you know? If you're going to stop after when the world explodes at the end of your movie, like, how can you really go on from there? I feel like he picked the wallop of a film to do, and perhaps that's why he hasn't gone back to the genre. Uh, I don't know. This movie is directed by Alex Proyas. I'm pronouncing that right. Proyas? Do we know that's how, how to pronounce That's how I've heard it. I try not to say his name, only because I don't know how to. <laughs> he, I also saw a picture of him today on IMDb, and he does not look at all like no. I thought he would. I did the same thing. I did the same thing. He does not look like what I thought. Not not the brooding... I expect him to look kind of like um, Tim Burton, you know? I thought he looked like Tim Burton, or like for some reason... I don't think this is racist, but I thought he might look kind of like M. Night Shyamalan. Just sort of like a <laughs> like a skinny guy, like a like a guy full of mysteries. He's just like this big, overweight white guy. It's just yeah. like what? Like that's this is the guy who's creating Dark City, who's creating Knowing. It just it's strange. Yeah, and uh, I listened to the audio commentary this time around. I, I had the extra time, and he he's either a Kiwi or an Aussie, but he's got a oh. strong accent. He oh. sounds a lot like Peter Jackson. That's amazing. I did, I, I did not know that either. That's amazing. Learning See, I'm learning so much. Yeah. So this movie is notable for a couple of different reasons. There's not too many cage connections here. One of my favorite actors in the world, Ben Mendelsohn, is in this, and he will come back in a couple of movies for Trespass. This is the film debut for Liam Hemsworth, a.k.a. Gale from The Hunger Games. Rose Byrne, whom I love, is in this movie. There's a lot of big names. Like, I love these movies that I don't remember. Like, I saw this movie a couple of years ago, but I don't remember that any of these people were in it. And I just love that these people that I know from other things since watching this movie for the first time, that they're all sort of in Cage's life now. Yeah, it was fun as the credits came up. As I say, I knew nothing about this movie. So as, as you know, Ben Mendelsohn's name came up and Rose Byrne's name came up, I was writing down their names in my notes with big exclamation points next to them. <laughs> like, I, it's fun to see, to see, especially as, a, you know, as you say, when you don't know what's coming. Rose Byrne is huge now, you know? Like, she's pretty much a superstar, and it's cool to see her in um, one of her first roles. I mean, she was sort of, believe it or not, she was a handmaiden in Attack of the Clones. If you go back, you could look for her in that. It's kind of a fun game. <laughs> but this is the first thing I ever saw her in, and I wasn't aware of who she was at the time. So it was kind of cool going back and being like, oh, cool, she's in it. <laughs> this is also like a real downer of a movie that at the end of the movie, everybody dies. We've had Cage die in a handful of movies, but is this the first time where everybody dies? Pretty much. Um, spoilers for next, but at the end of that movie, it appears that most of the greater 
California area is obliterated by a nuclear explosion. But this, yeah, this seems to take out far more people than that. You have to give the movie, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but you have to give the movie its due for going all the way with it. You know, when it tells you that everyone's going to die and then... Everyone dies. I mean, that's impressive. That's, that's, I'm impressed by that alone. What I really like about this movie, and we'll get to it at the very end, is that the ending is both like definitive and also very open-ended. Like, there's a very hard shut. Like, we know, without a doubt, the world ends. That the solar flare that Cage sort of learned about, predicted years ago, that actually obliterates Earth. But then these kids are rescued and brought to some other planet, and that you sort of you don't really know what that means, and that could mean a lot of different things. So I just like that there's like a, a hard, fast, definitive ending, like end of one thing and a beginning of another. Yeah, I, I agree there too, but I also maybe wonder, and we'll get to it, are there too many endings to this movie? I mean, I feel like there's maybe two or three spots where we could have cut it shorter. I like where it goes. Ultimately, I, I let's put it this way, I accepted a lot more than I did the first time watching this. Watching this the first time, I had a, a hard negative effect to this film when I watched it for the first time. Like I rented it right when it came out on DVD, so it was, I guess, like the year it came out. My opinion of this movie has changed drastically. Yeah, this was a movie that I really didn't know how to think or like what to think about it or how to feel about it when I first saw it. I was really not sold on it. It was either a movie that I loved or absolutely hated. Rewatching it, I remembered a lot of it, but the very end and the whole like alien subplot, I completely forgot all of that, and so I remembered some stuff, and but I agree with you, Mike, that I like this movie a whole lot more the second time around, but I'm still not sure if this is like one of my, say, five or ten favorite Cage movies, or somewhere more in the middle of the list. If nothing else, it's a fascinating movie. And, and even if it is two or three movies sort of woven together in a way, and I'm not surprised, Joey, to hear that you, after watching it the first time and then some, some time in between, there, were, there was one sort of subplot that you didn't you know, remember because it would be easy to do that, I think. The movie sort of switches gears in pretty strong ways, it feels, when it goes from you know, b- between these subplots. And I think that's a tough thing for a movie to pull off. And I'm not sure this does it all the way, but I can see that repeat viewings would be pretty enlightening with this movie, I think. It's tough. I, I was going to say mostly the same thing. Like, there's a lot of really cool and interesting ideas and stuff happening in this film, but then there's just also a lot of completely ridiculous and like crazy things going <laughs> on. And and it's just hard to reconcile my feelings about that. Sometimes, in the end, this time, in my second viewing, the cool and interesting definitely won out. But there is sort of a battle going on there for me. The movie begins in 1959, 50 years before present day. A year before Peggy Sue got sent back in time. Ooh. (laughs) Very very different origin stories for those two movies, though. And different endings. And very (laughs) different endings. There's a little girl there. They decide that they're going to to honor or to there. There's an idea. What what's the idea? Like there's a contest. <laughs> yeah. I can't. I watched this movie this morning and I already can't remember why there's a time capsule. What's the like? What's the contest? Like are they just having like a celebration? Like is it like a centennial or something? That's probably the first thing I'd have changed for for <laughs> like it should have just been we're burying this time capsule for whatever fifty years or however long. You know everybody writes something, but for some reason they make it this little girl's idea like she wins this idea of what they're gonna do for the centennial or whatever and and yeah they all have to write pictures of the future in the time capsule and they're gonna bury it i mean i guess the one reason that you keep it a contest is because it gives you a little bit of characterization of lucinda the girl who wins the weirdo girl sort of the star of the beginning of this movie 
because everybody's like, oh, Lucinda won. Like, what a weirdo. But, like, we would know that really quickly by the fact that she's possessed by some demon spirit, writing all these numbers <laughs> instead of drawing a picture, yeah. and then running off to a closet and scratching until her fingernails bleed. We would know that she's a weirdo and sort of an outcast, but I guess that's why they had a contest? I don't know. The other reason, if you look back from the end of the movie, is if you are Lucinda... What you want to do is warn people in the future about the end of the world. And so your idea for how to celebrate whatever they're celebrating in the school would be to, to have a time capsule to give some kind of warning to the future. Uh, now, I don't know that that works. I don't know that that's right. I don't know that that's a great idea. But I think, <laughs> that's, I think that's part of why they have it be her idea. But it's like a terrible idea because <laughs> the end of the world is coming basically in 50 years and one month. And this thing's not going to be open for 50 years. And so <laughs> like the whole yeah. like game, her, mm-hmm. her long-term game plan is to bury this away for 50 years and then in the span of a month have that piece of paper get to the right person, figure out what all those numbers mean, which Cage does pretty quickly – Cage is also the right guy to do this, so I mean, that all works flawlessly, but then I guess figure out a way to save the world from the end of the world, like, and also, like, at this point, Cage sort of seems to sort of think that the government by this point already knows that the world is about to end, and they don't have an answer, so, like, Lucinda, terrible idea, this is not, this is not a good idea for this time capsule. Well, let's take it a step further, so what about these aliens that are yes, manipulating yes. the little girl? Why don't they just hold a press conference, or I mean, I understand we need a movie. You know, I'm just joking around at this point. But, like, for real, contact the teacher. Contact, you know, someone else a little more apt to deal with it. Or I think it's more of a thematic statement that children are going to be saved. And You know what I'm saying? Like, she is trying to warn the adults, and in the end, it's the kids that get saved. So, like, let's start it with a child, and let's make her misunderstood, and let's just triple down on all of that at the beginning here. But ultimately, the list didn't need to be quite as long if it was only going <laughs> to be opened in the future. There are a couple other ways to go about this. I just think it's someone said, I, I have like an idea where they open a time machine and there's a cryptic note inside that foretells the end of the world. This is sort of where they went with it. Yeah, that's exactly right. This movie feels like every eight minutes, you get another great idea somebody had and you sort of throw it into the movie, <laughs> and they sort of string it together as best they can, but they do not all work. Like, the, the movie does not, on a, on a basic logic level, like, how, how, as you say, Mike, how stupid are these aliens? I mean, the, the, the number of ways that they could, even, even just having her write in the time capsule thing, even if it's in code so nobody will know, the Earth will end on this day, make sure you go to this place, <laughs> or whatever. You yeah. know, like, if they really wanted to save these kids, then maybe that would be the way they'd go about it. But those moments, some of those moments that are cool ideas, you know, within the scene, they work pretty well. It's just yeah. that when you sort of string them one after another, my note, my notes go from, oh, that's a great <laughs> idea, that's a great scene, to the next line is like, but that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> to the next line is, oh, but that's a great idea. You know, and they, it sort of waffles back and forth through the whole movie, I think. I think that the real problem here is that the alien's ultimate goal is never really clear. I don't think that they ever have an intention of saving humanity. I think they kind of want to start fresh. And I don't know if this planet that they bring Abby and Caleb to at the end is their home planet, or if they're just sort of these beings that float around the universe and then save kids from everywhere. Maybe. The way that it kind of could make sense is that their plan is to channel themselves into Lucinda, who writes this note. Whatever kid finds the note, 
he and this girl that he's like through kismet or whatever that he's going to meet up with this girl and they're going to be saved. And so maybe the time capsule, maybe this note that Lucinda drew wasn't to save the entire world, but just these two kids. I don't know if that's right or not, but that's the only explanation to me that makes sense in terms of like the logic of like what these aliens might be thinking. Yeah, because otherwise it comes across as here's <laughs> like I don't know. It's weird. It's like they're showing you that the world's going to end and there's nothing you can do about it. Like what kind of people is that? Like I don't understand. The motive there is is lost on me. I'm mostly going to just go with like thematic kind of things, like science fiction of this nature, especially which I'm going to come to discover throughout the movie, where it, it deals more with like religion versus science and you know metaphysical things and just the blending of all that. Um, I wasn't really exposed to a lot of that type of science fiction when I first saw this, but since seeing this, I've read stuff like Childhood End and, and other things where children, you know, are the future and they're important and, and their innocence has a certain sense of power and hope and wonder. Early on here, I, I'm sort of just going to start taking them as symbols rather than anyone doing anything sort of <laughs> rational, perhaps. I don't know. I think there's also kind of a precedent set that kids can be like a conduit to things that they're more open to wonder and the possibility and that instead of contacting the teacher the aliens go after kids not only because they're the future but because their brains are maybe more willing to accept the possibility that they're going to let themselves be channeled and sort of architect their own future it's hard to think about this movie and not come to uh, Close Encounters pretty quickly once yeah. you realize what this movie is. And I think that one of the things this movie might be trying to do is ape the idea that we can't under we can't fathom the technology and philosophy and plans of this alien species, whatever they are, these aliens. The issue is that uh, the movie then wants this movie wants to put all that stuff into sort of genre things that were uh, signifiers that we're supposed to understand, whereas Close Encounters encounters really follows through on the idea that they don't speak our language at all. They speak through music and light and color, you know? And I think that there's something lost in the translation with those ideas to the ones in this movie in terms of the aliens. But I think Mike's right. I think you have to deal with it just thematically. If you're going to enjoy this movie, you can't get hung up on it working logically. Yeah, I think that's a pretty interesting parallel to Close Encounters, where the vibe of that film is much lighter, much more childlike in its in and of itself, too, with its sense of wonder. And this, at times, feels like horror movie. They're trying to use a device that worked well in a family film, but they're implanting it here in like this movie where terrible, horrible, devastating things are going to happen. You know, nothing of the like will ever occur in Close Encounters. It's true, <laughs> but there are also moments of real dread in Close Encounters. You think about the the little boy getting taken from the house, you know, and his toys start coming to life and the light shining through the door and, and he runs away from the mom and like there are there are mm-hmm. moments that are that are pretty spooky at least. Now, you're, you're totally right. It does not go to horror movie in the way that this does. But then you start moving into the sort of poltergeist arena true, uh, true. in terms of choo- choosing children and all that kind of stuff or working through children and the parallels don't always work to this film's advantage, but I think they're there. I just want to say that there was that one shot where the whisper person comes to Caleb in his bedroom and shows him the vision of all the animals burning. And that just like the kid with the red light outside, it just even looks like Close Encounters. It wants to be Close Encounters so bad, both visually and also thematically, and isn't necessarily paying off either way. 
That was a very interesting part of the movie to me because, I mean, I had seen this film before, but I had to wonder, you know, did they decide whether these Whisper people were supposed to be good or bad? Or, you know, are, are they trying to trick the audience in some way? Because there's this blonde white guy in a black trench coat showing the kid basically hell on earth. And I'm wondering if we're supposed to think that he is possessed. You're right. Like, is, has this shifted from Close Encounters to Poltergeist? And where is it going to try and shift next? Going back to the classroom in 1959, they're all drawing pictures of what they think the future will look like, and Lucinda just draws a page full of numbers, and the teacher is, like, disappointed in her, but still puts in the time capsule nonetheless, which I think is a nice thing that she's like, oh, Lucinda, you're being a little bit of a crazy person, but, like, we're still going to respect your vision of art. Lucinda disappears because the teacher had pulled away the paper before she was done. This, I also feel like, is a thread that they don't need to follow up on later in the movie. Later in the movie, Caleb is drawing numbers. He, like, when Cage pulls the paper away, he, like, keeps drawing on the desk. So, like, Cage sees, like, the kid is possessed and he's going to keep going. And he remembers through this conversation with the teacher that they found Lucinda down in, like, the basement of the school, scratching the door. And so he has to go find the door to find the numbers, and that's when he finds out about the trailer. They already know by that point, don't they, that, like, E.E. is everyone else? I don't know what they thought, like, that's their salvation. It's a weird sort of thread that they do complete and do follow through on, but I'm not sure that we necessarily need it. Yeah, so she writes the final coordinates of where the final event is supposed to take place, but it's the entire planet, so you don't really need coordinates for that to happen if a solar flare is going to wipe everyone out. So what the final coordinates end up being is where the aliens are going to pick up the kids, right? But at the end, the aliens take the kids from Rose Byrne <laughs> and go to the ship, and then they just wait for Nick Cage to show up so that they can leave. You're right, those final door numbers don't really serve much of a purpose, especially since Cage sort of intuited the idea that everything leads back to the crazy trailer in the woods anyway. But you also find out when they're in the car with Rose Byrne that the aliens already know where they are. She's like, I'm trying to drive you away from the whispery people. They're like, why are you doing that? Like, they already know where we're going to be. Like, you can't hide from them. Like, they don't need a location. <laughs> they can just go wherever. Like, again, like, I feel like I've said this a couple of movies recently. I'm like, I don't, like, I'm nitpicking it because there's stuff to nitpick, but I did like watching the movie. And so I just want to put that disclaimer right up top that I enjoy this movie. I think it's a fun movie. I think it's cool. And it's visually pretty great. It's just that there's a lot of, like, logic things that just, like, don't make any sense and the movie like tries to make them make sense, but also at the same time is totally okay with them not making any sense. This is the way they're trying to make it make sense. Cage gives a lecture when the first time we see him in his, or the only time we see him in his classroom, about free will versus determinism. Do we get to set our own destiny or is our destiny determined for us? The way they retcon all this stuff about when, whether the aliens know these kids and how they're drawing them when they could just pick them up and drive them where they need them to go, like, is that the idea at the end they tell us is that, or Cage tells Caleb, I guess, that the kids need to decide to go. They can't be forced to go. They can't be kidnapped. That they need to make a choice to go. And so if that's true, if what they're telling us is that free will is important to make this, you know, to save humanity, if not the humanity that's on the planet, at least the seeds of a new humanity, then what they need to do is find figure out a way to get Cage and his kid to this place at the same time so that the kid can, you know, on his own leave to go with the aliens. Now, does that work? Is this the smoothest, straightest course to get there? I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> but I think that is, as, as Mike's been saying, that's, thematically that is what they're working with. I'm willing to buy that too because he 
does set it up. It is the lecture, you know. It is sort of the thesis of the film. One thing I, I, I thought too hard about is, like, if everything was determined to be a certain way, why does it feel so random? Like, <laughs> I just wish, like, the aliens... I know they can't really talk, but maybe if they pulled out... A, they can't really pull out a map either or something like that. It's, it's just very hard. You know, this, this is a movie that is just going to raise more questions than answers. It's just the, structured that way. I feel it's that, that type of movie that we're going to end up with. I mean, the problem, though, is that there is a focus on communication at the end that Caleb has hearing aids. He knows sign language. As he's leaving, you know, they sign to each other. There is forms of nonverbal communication. We just talked about Bangkok Dangerous, right? Yeah, where there yeah. was where there was another way where just a deaf-mute girl with a guy who does not speak the language of the country, and they're able to communicate. There are ways to communicate between two groups of people. Even if you don't have a map, you can't speak English, whatever. There are ways to convey ideas from one group to the other. And what does he do? He, he gives him this horrible nightmare of the world on fire, and he's and the alien's like, well, that's the best I could do. Like That's just like <laughs> as close to human speech I can get. And so they bury the time capsule, and then we cut to 50 years later, and they're uncovering the time capsule, and coincidentally, Cage's son Caleb gets the piece of paper from Lucinda, because of course he has to, because it's a movie. He brings it home, and this sort of begins Cage's obsession that we have, like we've been talking about how he's a professor, talking about free will, talking about determinism, but he's also a scientist, he's also kind of a mathematician. This is just kind of like right in his wheelhouse, that whatever his actual job title is, decoding a series or a page of numbers is exactly up his alley. Right, and this gets to one of the things that really works in the movie, one of those cool moments, right? I shouldn't say that works. One of these really cool moments in movie visually where you see him begin to crack the code of what these numbers mean. The same thing is would be true of the way that they reveal that Caleb has some kind of impaired hearing. You know, when it we don't we see them have an entire conversation outside as as Cage is cooking him hot dogs, and the, and Caleb actually says to him, "Are you deaf? I just told you, you know, whatever he was saying." <laughs> so that's it's all it's all planted ahead of time. We don't know that he has any kind of hearing impairment. And then in his room, he takes the hearing aid out of his ear and puts it next to the bed. There's this close up shot of it right next to the bed, and you go, "Oh wow!" Like there's some great sort of visual reveals in this movie. Like, at that level, scene to scene, some of the filmmaking is really good. And then another one is, as we've been saying, is as Cage begins to decode the numbers on the on the paper. I love the look of this film, and I do believe it's shot very well, and it's directed really well, too, with shots like that. And, and they do a good job of dropping shots of the sun early on, too, you know? Like, yeah, little clues yeah. about that, and Cage sort of picks it up and plays with it in class and tosses it around, and it's like, oh, don't disrespect the sun like that, you know? It's going to come back. And and then in the house here, they do this great... I love the scene where he goes to tuck his son in, and he's watching old videos of his mother tucking him in, or that's all I need to know, that this father is grief-stricken, and talk about, like, lack of communication between things. Like, he's having trouble with his son like bonding again or getting past at least he's having trouble getting past his wife's death so i believe it when he like you know starts getting drunk at night and is having trouble sleeping or, or right. things things like that it's a quick thing that's done really well later on they, they come and bring it back up in in strange ways but for the time being i i like this setup i think that the smaller this movie goes the better it is mm. that these little moments like him overfilling the glass him just staring at that gift, I guess, because his wife was out in Phoenix on her birthday and he bought her a present and she never came home because she died in the hotel fire. 
it's these like little like glances or like character moments. They tell a story. Like we were talking, I think, on the World Trade Center in past episodes that like it's about showing, not telling, right? Like that's the number one rule right. in everything. It's these little tiny things that they don't have to have a scene where Cage is like looking at a picture of his wife and just sobbing, or you know, <laughs> telling Rose Byrne. Like it comes up naturally later, but it's not like, hey, remember that time that my wife died? Like he shows Ben Mendelsohn like the the, the article print. He's like, yeah, like why are you showing me that? Like I already know that. Like we've already talked about that. Like it feels real and lived in. Like these little moments are great, and then when the movie gets big and tries to talk about like you know aliens and like determinism and feet, it's like you're sort of reaching for things and don't really have anything to grab. And this is what I mean about it feeling like a couple different kinds of movies. And you can do that, but this feels like it's maybe one too many. So uh, you know, and and everything could be a little bit cleaner. I feel like so when he when he discovers he just there's this cool visual thing when he when he puts his his glass of I think it's scotch or maybe it's whiskey down on the page of numbers and it creates a ring around some of the numbers and then he looks at that ring and sees oh there's there's some numbers that make some sense to me somehow right and he writes them up on the board and that's when we get the the first said number C decodes, which is 9-11. And I wrote my notes at that point, like, okay, so he starts cracking the code, then I say dot, 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 it's a 9-11 alien movie, question mark? Like, it becomes... <laughs> It becomes one more thing on top of on top of everything else, and he has he goes to the computer to look up nine eleven, you know, as as though he'd never as though he didn't know it had happened eight years ago. What he discovers is that the the next number two thousand nine hundred ninety six is the number of people who who died, I guess, in the World Trade Center, right? That's what he's, he's yeah uh, yeah yeah right? on that so, day. Yep. So, you know, there are cleaner ways to do it. Like he sees nine eleven in the ring, and he thinks, oh nine eleven, and he writes that up on the board, and then looks back at the thing and says, oh two nine nine six, that looks familiar, and then asks that question, you know. I don't know. It just it feels like it's maybe trying to make some things too complicated rather than making the movie complex. You know what I mean? Well, first of all, like of course the cipher has to be nine eleven. Like it just like <laughs> that just seems like that just makes sense. I also was talking to Mike earlier. You know, I guess we were talking about World Trade Center. I guess five years after nine eleven, it's okay to make a movie a movie about nine eleven. Then apparently eight years later, you can make a movie that basically kind of recreates nine eleven. Where you know after there's that subway crash, he yeah. walks out coated in that yes. gray dust and we see mm-hmm. new york get demolished like it's not that far removed and like they're evoking 9-11 they're talking about all these different tragedies i mean i guess that it's far enough and like you always have to wonder like how soon is too soon in terms of our history in terms of like tragedies 9-11 is the most iconic in terms of date right it has to be 9-11 as the cipher i just agree that it is kind of like a clumsy way that they kind of go about doing it I actually think it's quite intentional. Like, I mean, it could have been like D-Day. You know, there are historic days in history and things like that. But I think they want to invoke 9-11 for serious, like, because this whole idea, like, and and this is going to sound ridiculous, but the sun is like the terrorists. You never know when an attack is going to happen. You never, you know, it's always going to be like this huge major catastrophe that kills innocent people. It's just like, at the time, the threat level warning, which makes an appearance in this movie, you know, raise it to Uh red from orange or whatever these are the themes of the day like this is sort of like trying to make sense of the headlines you know like we're living in this world under constant attack by invisible enemies and don't lose your mind i don't know it's it's like a way of trying to deal i suppose now is it good taste or poor taste i mean you know i I i'm not quite sure is it long enough i could have used without the last shot of Times square going up in smoke i'll give them like one or two shout outs and after he figures out like what these numbers mean, he sort of goes through like this whole thing. And he's Googling dates, he's Googling numbers of people dead, and he's putting everything together. And then we get something that we've had a lot lately in Cage Club, 
one of my favorite types of cage, which is crazy conspiracy theory cage, trying to sell himself to someone else. <laughs> that you know, in National Treasure, him going to Diane Kruger's office and be like, mm-hmm. "All right, this might sound crazy, but like, I need to look at the Declaration of Independence and look at its back, maybe, <laughs> and squirt lemons on it." And here he's just like, "Okay, Ben Mendelsohn, like, I know this is going to be crazy, but like, hear me out. I have a paper with all these tragedies." And there's three more, and like, let's figure it out. Then he's like, just like, he's like, you're crazy. Like, like this is insane. Look at this. Look at the numbers beside the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 2,996. Right. That's how many people died in the attacks that day. Yeah. All right, stay with me. I know how this sounds, but I've matched these numbers to the dates of every major global disaster for the last 50 years in perfect sequence, except for three. And these events haven't occurred yet, starting with this one. So tomorrow. Somewhere on the planet, this number string predicts that 81 people are going to die in some kind of tragedy. Oh, whoa, whoa. I mean, have a listen to yourself. I know. It sounds pretty crazy. Right? I know. I mean, even for you. Yeah, I like the way he drops things like the Kabbalah and numerology and things like that. And, and I started thinking about the film Pi, you know, and like mm-hmm. the name of God represented in a number and like all, all these kinds of cool things. I like it, too, also for the fact that Cage is the crazy one. Like, I'm not going to reveal the secret of Soylent Green, but it must be sort of like knowing the secret of Soylent Green and not being able to tell anyone. Like, just this idea that you are so committed to that drives you crazy because no one will believe you. It makes for some good screen time. It's neat for a a film to do this, too, because it allows the filmmaker to play with whether or not we should believe him. And I think in this movie, I don't know that we ever really think, oh, is he crazy? I mean, once or twice I did. Like, is, is is he making this up somehow? But it allows you to sort of skirt that line a little bit. And I also, it also makes me wonder, like, why Ben Mendelsohn is so skeptical. Like, of course Cage is acting crazy. You have a sheet of all, like, you have all these examples. You know what I mean? Like, how much more proof does somebody need? Someone who's, like, friends with Cage. It's not like he's going to a stranger like Diane Kruger. Why is this so difficult Mm -hmm. for somebody to believe? I may have stumbled upon that answer. We'll find out that Nick Cage's dad is a priest, and that Cage is a man of science, and his dad's a man of faith, and and they do not see eye to eye. What they're doing here is they have this scientist who believes in something so strongly and has like such faith in it, and then they have another scientist playing the scientist, being like, "Oh, you're you're crazy. This is preposterous. Like no one would ever believe you." So in a weird way, they turn Cage into his dad, but like the science version of the fanatical priest. So it's like Jack and somebody in between yeah <laughs> yeah it's exactly and this is this is exactly gets to the uh, the point of it, it does the movie no service to think about it logically you have to think about it thematically thematically that works logically joey i completely agree with you this doesn't this doesn't make a a, 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 a whole lot of sense in terms of what we know what we learn about how close ben mendelson and nicholas cage are in this movie that, that he would be so dismissive in that way i mean you could imagine the version where he's like oh this seems crazy, but let me let me take this home and think about it. You know, like there would be a way to do that scene, but that would not line up thematically with what they're trying. Yeah, instead he gets that terrific shot at the end where he sees Cage driving down the street through yeah. the riots, and he's just like, "You were right. Yeah. You were right." Got it. Oh, I hate that shot so much, so much. I mean, I guess ultimately though, it doesn't really matter that even if Ben Mendelsohn is on board from square one, that he's just like, "All right, like I'm, I, I agree. Like this is enough proof for me. Let's figure something out." None of it really matters. So. Whether it's determinism or fate, like it's just—it's sort of like a futile effort either way. The whole movie yeah. is <laughs> all everything Cage does. None of it would have mattered. 
You know what I mean? Like, none of it would have mattered in the end. It's like Raiders of the Lost Ark in that way. You know, like, the same, the same stuff would have happened whether or not Indiana Jones gets involved. And so <laughs> it, you have to enjoy – if you don't enjoy the ride as it goes, you're not going to like where it takes you. Yeah, I'm sort of thinking of next – a lot while watching this because that was a film I kind of had some troubles with but on a scene to scene basis it seemed to work uh, you step back and look at the whole thing and it, and it doesn't really vibe <laughs> but but one thing he does do in that film is sort of try not to act right imagine this movie if Nick Cage discovered the world was going to end and then took his kid on vacation to enjoy his last days and you know that would be the best <laughs> movie maybe but like that would be a great story perhaps and, and that's sort of what happens in next is like Julianne Moore is like listen we know a guy's going to nuke LA we need your help you can see the future and he's just like you know what lady like I've been down that road I can't help you like I'm just gonna try and finish the rest of my life with Jessica Biel for the week and be happy if I can. I think what also kind of makes sense in terms of that idea for this movie, Cage sort of just seems depressed by everything, that after he figures out that like these are disasters and he sort of wants to prevent more, he basically just goes home and watches the news, right? And just like tries to find out if he's right. Like he sort of knows that he's right. He's hoping that he's wrong. And so it's kind of just like this like weird, awkward level of depression almost. Like it seems like all hope is lost and like all hope is lost. I guess it's more a matter of how he deals with it. I'm not sure. We find out he has a sister too, right? And Joey, I'm pretty sure this is the first time Nick Cage has an on screen sister. I think oh, I confirmed hey. your research. Yeah, fifty seven movies, Tobin. Nice. Finally has a sister. Oh wow. And unfortunately, she's kind of done a disservice here. <laughs> she plays babysitter once or twice and tells him to call dad. <laughs> and that yeah. kind of stinks. Like, it would have been cool. You know, one way I might change this film is have his sister, you know, I'm not saying make her a twin, you know, but like have his sister be a scientist too, or someone who straddles faith in science a little more than he would use her to help work out what's going on. I mean, you could still bring Rose Byrne in at some point and, you know, we'll leave the sister character. I, I was like excited she was an element and then I was bummed that she was kind of wasted. I feel like there's a lot of missed opportunities with his family. Like, that, you know, the dad could be yes. played for so much more than he is. He's basically, like, the perfect foil to Cage, and so is Ben Mendelsohn. Like, there's there's so many characters in here that, like, have the promise of something good. I guess combine them into one, almost. I guess like, exactly what you're saying, Mike. Like, you know, make his sister the Ben Mendelsohn character, and then maybe have the dad more involved because of that. I don't know. Like, yeah. condense characters, and then instead of having each of these be on screen for, like, three or four minutes, have one character on screen for 10 or 15 minutes. I mean, I might even take it one step further. This might be too incestuous, but maybe Cage is visiting his dad at the beginning of the film, and his son's going through some old religious texts, and this list of numbers falls out, and they take it home, and Cage starts deciphering it, and that's how, you know, he tells his dad, like, it's not a religious thing or whatever it is, and it's a science thing, too. It might be aliens, who knows? And that could be the theme of the film in another dimension. I don't know. Yeah, no, exactly. It's like somebody wrote a, uh, you know, a cool scene where I uh, thought, oh my gosh, what if somebody discovers something in a time capsule 50 years later this crazy girl wrote? Oh yeah, what could that be? Oh, it could be numbers that, that tell you when all these disasters are going to take place. Yeah, that's cool, and we have this conspiracy movie. And then somebody else came in and did a draft of, oh, and what if it's uh, what if there's a faith element? What if his father is a pastor and he's a man of science? And then we val- and then somebody else comes through and says, yeah, and what if it's all aliens? Yeah, let's put in this <laughs> alien stuff. It gets, it gets to be multiple personalities. 
differently, this movie. And you're totally right, Joe, if you streamlined that and decided it was going to be more one of those things and maybe a little less some of the others, you could tie it together. I think it would work better as a movie. I think it would be a more cohesive story if you could sort of thin some of that out, as cool as any one of those would be, you know? Yeah, there's definitely a version of this movie like that in here, and it just feels like they might not have been able to get that film made, so they they needed to bring right. you know a big star on board and turn it into a quasi-action blockbuster kind of thing going on there, too. So I could see that being in there, and it's too bad that we don't live in an age where a film like that could have been made. Can I say something else about the sister scene? The sister comes to visit. First of all, this happens right after the creepy guys in the car give the boy what, what I thought first was an egg. It's like a smooth yeah. stone. It just—it's weird. The whole thing is weird. Like the rest of the stones, they get—he gets are black through the rest of the movie, right? Why this one white stone? I just—and I wrote in my notes at that point. This better add up. Dot dot dot. <laughs> like <laughs> there are so many threads here now. Like these better weave together. And then the sister visits, and I write my notes. Oh goodness! Now it's a movie about faith? Question mark. And in that scene, and this is some of these scenes, especially this one and the other ones with the sister, feel a little hastily written. He claims that to get her out of the house, that he has to get up early, and it's like four o'clock in the afternoon. You know, like they're just things, especially in, in the scenes with his family, that the end would pay off a lot better if they were either more intrinsically important to the store and to Cage, or if they were at least written better. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. It just it makes my head hurt sometimes. Just like there's so many things. I guess it goes back to what we were saying earlier, right? Like there's there's the promise of this like amazing story and this amazing vision for a movie, and then it just gets bogged down and like things don't really pay off. And there's just too many threads happening at any one moment. For any genre, they could have hung this film on. What they wind up going with is a mystery. And I kind of think that was a bad way to go. I'm not sure what other way you could have gone, but this whole thing about tracking down the teacher, then tracking down the girl who wrote the letter, and then teaming up with her daughter, and tracking down this house to find the writing under the bed, and who are these people in trench coats? Like, I don't know if it needed that much mystery. I'm not sure that needed to be the center of the film, per se. Like, there's like there are all these other things it could have it could have been. So it's a little strange to me that, you know, at its core, it is, like, supposed to be a mystery. I have a question I've been meaning to ask, and I'm not sure if, you, if, if there's a really a clear answer. Can these aliens see the future, or are they causing these disturbances, are these causing these disasters on Earth? That's the question. Is this determined? Is the cycle of the Earth just the way it is? Do they know the sun is going to do this thing? Or are they causing this in order to sort of purge Earth, you know? Are they God? Or are they, do they know what God has planned? The movie wants you to, I think, the movie wants you to wrestle with that. The problem is it doesn't, it doesn't lay it out well enough, for I think, for you to know that that's what it wants you to wrestle with. Or maybe it's just not that interesting a question. Yeah, I took them as somewhat like these kind of engineers. I don't know. I, I thought of like chariots of the gods? Question mark a lot, like because uh, question marks in the title. That's <laughs> chariots yes. of the gods, <laughs> because, you know, because it deals with like ancient civilization seeing things they can't explain come down from the sky and mistake them as gods, and you know that's how the Greeks got their gods. Or I never read the whole book, but I'm familiar with it. <laughs> and and I was sort of that was what was sort of coming into my head. Like, have they been trying to shepherd humanity throughout the years and did and now they're like now nah, let's just like start anew somewhere else and that would have meant they needed to sort of nuke the sun to cause this sudden solar flare otherwise it feels like the scientists of the planet 
that have been studying the sun for years and years could have predicted this catastrophe to some degree. And maybe they did in another part of the movie that we just don't get to see. So there is some theory, and I don't remember exactly what it's called, but there's some theory about the evolution of man in terms of like where we are in the grand scope of basically controlling the universe, about how there's so many different stars out there. This is going to get off on a way tangent. I, I don't know it. enough about I it. I love it. So, so there's like this scale. It's like a, it's like a four-point scale, I think. Mm-hmm. It's about being able to harness the power of sun and being able to harness the power of like energy around you that you're able to sort of develop as a, as a species. And we're like so far below one on this scale that it's crazy like we're nowhere near one and one is basically like we know how to use the sun's power to get elsewhere in the soul in, in the universe ultimately as you get to two three four you're so in control of everything that like you're basically also able to control time and so i feel like in this movie and I, they don't they never actually bring this up but i feel like in this movie they're sort of positive these aliens are these like crazy advanced beings that are able to maybe go back and forth through time and maybe that's the answer to my question that they're able to see everything that's happening not predict what's going wrong but like they already know the full extent of everything so like alright this is all that we need I don't know if they're having fun with it I don't know I don't know what their purpose is but I guess that's sort of like what they're going for I think partially what they're trying to go for is just this idea of alien, just like we're humans. We couldn't possibly fathom what they're thinking, you know, like they're aliens. They have alien thoughts. They're alien biology. Like, you know, as hard as we're going to try, it's always going to be one step above our consciousness to figure out. I'm trying so hard to get something off these guys, literally blank slates, you know, like they just blank expression, blank clothes, blank everything that I just have to feel like they're almost like these observers, like on the show Fringe. They just, all they can do is observe and they know what's going to come because of their advanced math or their advanced weapons or their advanced technology. And we just can't communicate with them. That's that's what else I get. There's a movie that does this a lot better and it's by the same director. It's called Dark City. These guys are the, are the characters from Dark City, right? I mean, to, the, to their wardrobe, all, everything about the hats that they had in Dark City. And, and it's, a, it's a very different kind of movie in a lot of ways. And yet, I think you would, I think all you need to do is look at them side by side side you can see the similarities one of which is the these beings who observe and but can also change the course of in that movie the city's life you know the humanity's life because that is a much more closed system that movie and they're not aliens i guess but the whatever those guys are the guys in black by the end you realize what their goals are like they have goals they have a thing things they're trying to accomplish and they act in different ways and so it's like they borrowed the wardrobe and the just the idea of like guys standing in the woods watching you <laughs> and put it in this movie, you know? And, and and I have a suspicion, from what I've read, the movie went through, like, three different sets of writers, the last one being the director and another guy, and they did this last polish on it. I hope this, this didn't happen, but I, it feels like maybe they just laid that in because he knew he could do that. It would create interesting moments. It would be this thing for the audience to say, oh, what's that? But it's not nearly as thought through or, or integral to the story as it was in, in Dark City. And then, unfortunately, if you're a fan of Dark City and you watch this, it, it, it comes across as sort of this crutch, like a safety device for the director that he's maybe not confident in the rest of the film. So he needs something that he's he was sure of in the past that, you know, a symbol for himself to make him feel OK with it in a way. I'm not loving it. I think if there's one thing I, I'd have taken out of the film, it would have been 
the aliens. I think you could talk about and discuss that concept, um, and that could be one of the things that the film talks a lot about, but then never show them, or make it a complete deus ex machina and have them literally come in the last shot to like sweep up a couple people. So as you guys were discussing that, I, I googled what I was talking about so I could not look like such an illiterate fool. <laughs> the thing I was talking about earlier is the Kardashev scale, K-A-R-D-A-S-H-E-V, and that's why this Russian guy in the 60s who, who talked about there's five different types of civilizations. And basically, these aliens that are able to control time at the end of the movie bring Caleb and Abby maybe to the Garden of Eden, possibly? If we're going back to a faith element here, they're very far advanced, and we're still in the Type 1. We haven't even necessarily fully completed Type 1 yet, so that's that. One thing I want to say about that scale is, you know, if you don't even register as a 1, then an alien civilization is not going to notice you at all. So it's, it's just kind of weird. What is it about a human? It, are they just trying to, are we going to be an endangered species and they're starting a space zoo? That is ultimately <laughs> where I land for a lot of this movie. Well, I mean, maybe these aliens are so advanced that they have nothing better to do than just observe the entire universe and see that our entire civilization is about to die out. And they're like, we can rescue them and just give them a new start. We don't know enough about these aliens, and I kind of like that it's vague. It's cool that we don't know anything, but I also wish that we had some answers but I think, like Tobin said before, like that's just not the movie that this is going to be. Like They're just not interested in giving us answers to things. Yeah, it probably should be more or fewer answers. Or more answers or fewer questions. How about that? Can we say it that way? <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah, because I feel like for as much as they throw at us, they do pretty much pay off just about everything, which is kind of remarkable. I feel like yeah. there aren't any loose threads by the end of this film, and that is a triumph, I must say. <laughs> Yeah, can we talk about another cool thing that comes up here pretty quick, which is when Cage is in the car and he's stuck in traffic, he's late to pick up his kid, the moment when he looks at his GPS unit and realizes that the the numbers he's missed from the, the note are locations, are coordinates. That's a pretty cool reveal at that moment, and it leads us into this plane crash. Then he wanders through a sort of reverse uh, a reverse cage connection to World Trade Center, where he's trying to save people, right, from the, this, sure. this down plane, and people are coming out and fire. And here's where again, where I wrote this is like three movies in one. You know, there's a uh, you know more more people on fire in this movie than I've seen in one movie <laughs> in in a long, long time. But I think that that's that there are moments like that that this movie sits up and like it knows exactly what it is and 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 accomplishes it. Well, this entire scene is apparently just one take which I guess you sort of feel I didn't necessarily pay attention to but it's very cool it's also almost entirely ripped off the first scene in Lost like almost like shot for shot (laughs) that Cage is Jack Shepard here going through trying to rescue people you know, there's a plane crash, there's people just standing there shouting, just like Shannon. Like, I've seen that first scene, I don't know, like 50 times. I love The Lost Pilot. So I know, like, it's it's burning it's my brain. And, and this is, like, the exact same thing, you know, to the fact, like, there's propellers and there's just, like, everything and just people trying to save each other. And, like, it's cool and it works, but it's also, like, it's not that, like, it's four or five years after Lost premiered. It's just, it's it's weird how close it is, I think. No, I think you're right. I've, I've only seen The Lost Pilot, I think, twice, but but I had a flash to it as some characters walking past one of the big turbines, and isn't there a moment yeah. in the pilot where someone gets sucked into the turbine? And yep. that flashed into my head as I as I saw this. And I guess I'm I guess I'm not arguing that it's, this this is necessarily the pinnacle. Like that, I think that worked better 
in the pilot of Lost, but this feels like what this movie wants to and should be, especially when you get to the end and you see the other events that he's part of, that this feels right for this movie. I feel like it needs this moment, like we need him to be in the middle of at least one of these events, right? Like it has to sort of, you got to pinpoint it, you got to put a cap, like everything just needs to be, this is actually happening and he's been a witness and he's going to be in the middle of two accidents. I think they go one too far. I mean, but it is a quite an amazing scene. Now, I was, you know, getting thoughts of United 93 because it just sort of crashes in a field and they, they, uh-huh. they talked about 9-11 and I'm sort of surprised they're still going there at this point. <laughs> but it is pretty crazy. And, Joey, we talked a little more before the episode about other Lost connections. You know, Lost was an extremely popular science fiction, semi-faith-based show that had a lot of mystery. And some would say too much mystery and not a lot of payoff or not (laughs) enough payoff. And we get the... Sounds like someone is bitter. No, 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 no. No, I said some people. I've made peace with the show. Believe me, I'm a super fan. I'm bitter. You know, we get the plane. We get mysterious numbers, right? We get... Battle of Faith and Science, you know, we get Little Black Rocks, which are much like the pieces of the game that Locke plays with Michael, and I'm just, and there's a ship called the Black Rock as well, so it's just, I'm sort of starting to mix my mystery and my sci-fi in my head at this point. I, I still kind of want to do a Lost podcast, because <laughs> I, I think it would be amazing that we could reference all these Cage movies the more things come up, because <laughs> now we have these all in our reference base too. But what I like about this plane scene is that, again, It brings up the same question. I think what works best in this movie, and we've talked about it a lot here, when they're asking basically the same question, like the central question, like, is this fate, is this determinism? Again, like, it's it's not clear, but Cage is like, I was there at that moment. Like, the numbers brought me there. You know what I mean? Like, is that just a happy coincidence? Not necessarily happy is the right word, but, like, is it just a coincidence (laughs) that he was on that road when the plane crashed, or was he supposed to be there? We never really know one way or the other, but it really does get you thinking, like, all these, like, seminal moments in my life, you know, when you're there for, like, this major accident or whatever, like, was I supposed to be there, or that just, like, it just happened? Right, and that's what the movie wants you to do. It wants you to ask those questions, and it doesn't want to answer them for you. It does not want to tell you that free will or determinism is the way it is. Like, it's not, it's not going to come down and tell you. It's just going to keep posing these questions to get you to ask, to ask that question of yourself. And, that, and that's kind of a bummer just because of how much else they answer. It's the one thing they leave up to the viewer, right? Are you, are you a glass half full or a glass half empty? Are you optimist or a pessimist? Like, I, I don't know if I like that as much. Right. You know, I don't know if I like to be left driving home with that feeling of reevaluating myself because <laughs> this movie asked me to. I, I want it to be a movie for entertainment's sake more because that is sort of where it feels like it's going. Like, it feels like it's right. going to answer that question. It feels like at the very end, part of the reveal is going to be either no, this is all part of a plan, or yeah, there is nothing, it's all pretty random and just lucked out with your kid and everything. But I, I don't know. I, I think the movie wants to say this is all part of a grand scheme, that everything is orchestrated and these aliens could sort of read the universe and determine what's kind of going to happen. Something you said really struck with me, and th- this is maybe my main problem with the movie at, at sort of core at its core what the movie wants you to believe i think is that it's all determined right up until nicholas cage is standing there at the end with caleb has to choose or get caleb to choose to go the movie sort of it's not that maybe it's not that it wants you to be thinking about these things maybe that's a smokescreen for the fact that for the convenience of the of the script they want you to believe that it's all determined until the moment when they need it to be free will do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a, it's a little cheap. 
right? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, otherwise, they just would have left when they had the kids. It feels like, why do you wait until the moment that, right before the solar flare is going to hit? we got to see the dad one more time. Maybe it's a way that the movie doesn't want to take a side and just wants to be like, hey, both options are possible. Like, mm-hmm. we gave you determinism and we gave you free will. Like, hey, they you both choose. exist, which, which, which doesn't make sense. Like, they can't both happen. But the movie's like, yeah, no, they're both happening. In some strains of theology, there's the thought that we as humans need to feel like we have free will while actually everything is determined. Philosophers have tried to square that circle in the past. Uh, for me, it always feels like doing triple backflips to try and explain something, that, to take both answers, to say, yes, it's both free will and determinism. And if that's what this movie is trying to do, <laughs> I sort of say shame on it. I, 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 don't, I don't know that, that that's, the, that that's the, the best way for this kind of movie to go. I think that also kind of makes sense here, though, that maybe Caleb was always determined to go with the aliens at the end, and they just wanted to make it seem like he had the choice, but the choice was already made for him. Yeah. So I don't know that's necessarily like a cop-out i can see that kind of being a good thing if that was the intention behind it yeah who knows who knows right like i this is the movie is not interested in answering these questions for us and and i'm not entirely sure that it's smart enough to be posing them in the best in the best way but you know again we could talk ourselves circles around this i don't know that it's gonna (laughs) it's gonna make any difference one film i feel does do something like this very well without really even trying to be about it is something like the Truman Show, you know, where his entire life is determined for him, and then at the very last minute, he finds out, like, he has free will. It doesn't fit here. Like, that's all I can say. Like, after thinking about something like the Truman Show and just how well, like, it pulled something like that off, here, it's definitely clunky. What's also kind of clunky, maybe, is just how easily he finds Rose Byrne. (laughs) That he needs to find out more information about Lucinda. He wants to know, like, I think by this point he knows that she's dead, that he found out, he went to her teacher, and her teacher's kind of off her rocker a little bit. Like, she keeps offering him tea multiple times, so it's not clear that she's necessarily 100% there. But he finds out that Lucinda was killed, and so he finds out that Lucinda might have had a daughter. Maybe I zoned out at this point, but, like, he finds out that Rose Byrne exists, that Rose Byrne is Lucinda's daughter, and he has to go find her. And they have, like, the most awkward first conversation between two people. <laughs> I guess this chalks up the determinism because she is willing to go along with whatever he wants to say, even though he's, like, not doing a great job selling himself. I'm actually kind of curious as to Tobin's thoughts about their little meet-cute moment here because uh, I actually thought this was a great device just not in the right movie i just love that idea of you want to talk to this pretty woman and your son is talking to her daughter and it's like the perfect in you know but i don't know that he has like the time to do like he's gonna sort of blurt it all out at one point anyway so i almost feel like we needed that scene right here where he's just like i need to talk to you where's your wife where's your mother where's your mother it's a little slow where it needs to be quick but it quickens up quickly yeah i kind of like them getting into that scene the, the, he sends the kid over to talk to the girl and you're sort of like wait what what he wants him to do what and or just you know to stand next to her right and then that's his way of, of getting close to rose Byrne. i like that part but you're, you're totally right this has to sort of this has to sort of be slow enough that we believe that she would pay attention to him and listen to him and go go anywhere with him but yet fast enough to get the information that he needs to 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 get in order to stop whatever catastrophe is coming and so as with the rest of this movie there are moments that really worked sandwiched in between moments that i just don't think do well i think here we can sort of chalk it up to two different factors maybe 
Number one, again, if it's determinism, like, they're always going to have a conversation. It doesn't matter how he goes to her, hmm. no matter how he, like, sort of starts the conversation with her, they're always meant to connect because it's always meant to connect Caleb and Abby to be rescued at the end. But number two, I guess the way that you kind of rationalize it within the logic of the movie is that Lucinda, this crazy girl who turned out to be, like, a crazy old woman, must have really effed up Rose Byrne. You know what I mean? Mm. So maybe she's like, oh, this guy might give me answers. And, like, she kind of breaks down a little bit later in the movie. Like, when she realizes that her mom might have been right, you know, she wasn't totally crazy that she, as crazy as she sounded, she actually, like, knew what she was talking about. As sort of rushed and forced as a lot of this cage, like, sort of like this info dump, that it does sort of work, but it also just, like, he's, like, I think Mike said, like, he just has to say everything immediately. I think it could work within the movie, because Rose Byrne's like, oh, he can give me answers to this life of, basically, a life of questions. Right, it works as well as it can, for sure. These scenes with Rose Byrne are not throwing me out of the movie in the way that the sister scene did. I'm I'm with it, for sure. But I think I think you're totally right. I think it's, it sort of can't be, try, maybe, again, it's trying to do too many things. Yeah, Joey, I think you really nailed what her character should have been. Maybe Cage should have tracked her down, and she's, like, in, not, a, in a, not an asylum, but, like, checked herself into, like, a self-help place, you know, where she's, like, Ooh. you know, her mom really did do a number on her, and then Cage comes with this crazy story and she's like finally like someone believes me like I could get these answers and Cage like signs her out and they're off on, on their adventure together like that would have that would have been nice and clean I want to see that movie can you make that movie I want to see that movie <laughs> and, 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 and not just signs her out he has to break her out you know what I mean like that yeah. that's what this movie would do it would have a breakout scene I, I'm, I'm I'm loving it and they have to go find her daughter and kidnap her you know I mean I think it, that's the movie let's make that movie you really get like a clock up your ass too right like the cops start chasing you and all these things and then by the end and the world's going to end anyway. So they start breaking <laughs> lots of laws and tons of rules and all kinds of things. It could have just catered more to the action-adventure side, perhaps, and a little more of that. Well, speaking of cops and action-adventure, this is sort of like when Cage goes into, like, we already had the big plane crash, but now there's only two disasters left. And the one is sort of the, the big one that we're going to get to in a little bit. But the next one he finds out is in New York City. And he rushes to New York City. He's trying to figure, he's like, he thinks there's a bomb in the corner. And he calls the FBI and he's just like, this is not a crank call. Like, evacuate this area. And they're, of course, not going to do that. But then we go underground and we have the worst CGI in a movie, I think, so far in Cage Club. The subway car was awful. It was like in a movie full of like cool, great CGI. Like, did they just run out of money here? It definitely feels... To a degree, it feels like a rewrite scene. We need more action. We need more adventure. Like, I might have gone with the idea of give him another event that he can't be near, that he can't control, right? So he's like, okay, something's got a volcano is going to erupt in South America. And everyone's like, bull, bull, bull. But then, like, on TV the next day, it's like, oh my gosh, this volcano erupted. Da, da, da. I, I'm not sure why he needs to go to New York City. I mean, we've already got, I just feel like we've got so much reminder of terror alerts and 9 11 and flight. 93 and all this stuff like i don't need to get back to new york at this moment and when we get there i don't recognize it because it's everybody's wearing black and running around in business suits and it doesn't look anything like new york city to me can i stick up in defense of the scene absolutely for me the least realistic thing so far in this movie is the way he's able to park his truck in lower manhattan (laughs) i mean it's i mean come on man that's in defense of the scene (laughs) no yeah sorry sorry no that that to me to me that was the one thing that i did not like about this scene i didn't notice the CGI trouble. Maybe I was still flashing back to the um, Jesus with a water bottle in uh, World Trade Center <laughs> as far as bad CGI. But maybe that was just poor taste CGI. And maybe this is poor taste too. But I have to say, what I felt as this subway accident happens, 
Oh, wait, hold on. Are you talking about the subway as it pulls into the subway? Well, there's, like, be- there's bad CGI there's throughout. <laughs> I noticed the bad CGI as the train was just pulling into the into the stop as he was walking down the steps. I, yeah. I totally I totally noticed that. That was real bad. That was really bad. From then on, I am with this scene 100%. I'm not liking it like I'm going to go watch it again because it's horrific. It's just it's it's gruesome, right? And I liked it for two reasons. One, this is a movie that very early on told us it was going to be it was going to reference 9/11. And a lot of movies do that in sort of a oh we're just going to we're just going to sort of touch it and walk away and try and take some of the horror or mystique or tragedy or whatever. And this is a movie that says, "No, I'm going to take you through the sort of stations of the cross of 9-11 again, you know? It had sort of the guts to do that, which I think, you know, if you're going to do it, do it. You know what I mean? Like, if I don't know that I would make that movie, but if you're going to, props for going out and actually doing it. The second thing is the pacing of this scene and the fact that it was as gruesome as it would, as it would probably actually be for that to happen. I'm not noticing CGI. I am with him in this scene, and yeah, for whatever reason, this this worked for me. I mean, maybe that's just the difference between seeing this for the first time and seeing it for a second time. I don't know. It just, I think it works really well. Like, there is a frenetic pace here. I sort of hate and like at the same time the fake out where he's chasing this guy who, like, looks like he's carrying a bomb and just a guy who stole a bunch of DVDs. Like, I like that kind of fake out as much as it also kind of makes me groan. But I like it more, I think, because it also sort of is like a, oh no, like if that's not the problem, like Cage is helpless like once again. I guess sort of goes back to like what Mike was saying that, you know, it's somewhere around the world that like, as in this alternative, somewhere around the world where he can't help, like he can be right there on the scene and still be completely helpless because like the only lead he had turned out to be a false one. Again, like I hate to sound like a grump or anything, but I feel like that's kind of a cop. Like if you're going to do 9-11, then make this guy a terrorist. Go fucking all the way man like make him a terrorist have a bomb and blow it up because what happens it's like the train coming down the other track skips a rail because there's a spark on the third rail or something i mean did the solar flare cause that the scene is well directed it plays really well but i'm having all these little troubles with it i'm willing to forgive bad cgi that really has never taken me far out of a film i'm always willing to see past that but it's these other things like especially now that you guys are talking about it like if he wants to go for it like he should have done something like that would have been like ballsy to me like make this make cage actually track down the terrorist maybe my um defense of it was a little vociferous given how much <laughs> you guys were hating on the scene like I, not, I don't mean to say that i let admit that, that it perfectly works in this movie or that I, I just i felt like i had seen sort of you know you see sort of accident diverted and and you see movies going up against getting close to sort of mass tragedy in this way even just mechanical in this way but to really show like all the people that die get splattered on the front of the of the subways that goes through the crowd, you know, and it, it doesn't stop because I feel like in those moments the, these things feels like it lasts a lot longer than probably it actually does. And I don't know, I just it felt visceral in a way that maybe what it is is that in a way that some of the rest of the movie wasn't like it was yeah. it was sort of clear to me in a way that, that some of the mo- rest of the movie wasn't, and it was clean. He had to get there, he had to stop this guy. It's not the guy oh, no, the actual tragedy's coming now. And so so the fact that it went 1, 2, 3 instead of like 1, 8, 12, I, I think maybe, maybe that's why I was responding to it. So I think why I ultimately, like, it sounds like I don't like this scene, but why I think it ultimately works is that it shows that Nicolas Cage can't do anything to stop this, right? Like, right. it's out of his hands. Like, all, all he can do is witness it or be a part of it. But yeah, there's, there's nothing he can do. 
my last thought on the scene is that this movie's only rated PG-13, and I wrote down, I think Tobin made the point, but there's, like, bodies literally exploding in front of us, like, basically on the camera. Yeah. Like, if, if this movie was rated R, like, I can't imagine how gruesome this would be. Like, this is probably toned down the, the scene that they wanted to make. So if this is, like, the PG-13 version, like, I'm, I'm sort of scared what the R-rated version would be like. Yeah, it's totally true, and the and the imagery in here is uh, even after the crash, he walks out into the dust and the ash and the whatever. The nine eleven imagery just keeps coming, and this this works a little less well for me. But except that the slow motion here, I think, is used really well. The last time I was on talking about a movie it was World Trade Center, and Oliver Stone oh, way overused his slow motion, and here I think it's being used much better. You know, they use it in Caleb's room when the alien comes in for the first time uh, and is walking and shows him the sort of fiery vision out the window and they use it here and a few other points and I think it's it's used more sparingly and, and more strategically in this movie. I sort of remember it here in this scene that we're talking about now I don't remember it anywhere else, which I guess means to me that it was used effectively, if not necessarily overdone. After he fails to do anything about New York, there's just that one disaster left, and he teams up with Rose Byrne for a while. They're driving around, they're having conversations about determinism and fate, and she's basically just sort of scared for the future. They're kind of doing this for different reasons, right? Like, she's kind of scared, like, that her mom might be right, but he's driven by the fact that he wants his wife's death to have meaning. I don't know exactly why he's doing Like, I think that there's a cool idea there in terms of the fact that his wife died in one of these events, but I'm not sure what's driving him because he, he he's frustrated that he's like, if he had this earlier, he would have been able to save her, but, like, he can't get her back. So, like, I'm not sure, like, what what's really driving him here? Yeah, I have uh, no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right. I think you're right. I think there's a cool idea in here, but it's not fully fleshed out. It's just one idea. It's one, or it's one of many. You know, they could have used the the wife's death as a motivation for so many things and taken out the faith thing even entirely. I just, it's one thing too many. It does answer the question about how the, how exactly the wife died, which is something we've been guessing at a little bit. Like the movie's, you know, smart enough not to just tell us all that up front and so i think it masks in the canniness with which it reveals the information it masks the fact that the information does not have a whole lot of bearing on what we're seeing it kind of feels like they yeah here's a moment to answer how she died let's tie it to the numbers and let's drive the character even crazier or something like that but it does feel like an extra step to a degree. What I do like here, I thought this was kind of great actually, is when he's talking about when his wife died, what he was doing, right? And he couldn't sense that she died and he always felt, he thought people had like this connection, but Mm -hmm. really they don't. And it's just like really real to me for a minute there. And it gives me, Cage is giving me something from all of this mess, you know? And it's amazing that I'm picking this out here and I really, and like I'm using that to hold on to, to like relate to his character. Like I finally feel like I have like this little revelation about himself and how he can't feel and all this stuff or maybe his his feud with his father that's completely off screen could have used a little bit of a boost for this too and just all all of that I'm getting at least I'm getting a little bit of that it's kind of like the most depressing moment in a movie full of depressing moments right he knows exactly when his wife died and just sort of feels nothing it's heartbreaking but it also like like I love this moment and I fully agree with you but it also feels like kind of one degree removed like it's not necessarily yes. about fate like it's about something else right yes right yeah right yeah that's the issue that's it's a good moment wrong movie right exactly and you know this could have been the moment right this could have been the moment and then maybe instead of there being a father thing and a father 
pastor thing and a whole resolution of that at the end. Maybe he has not dealt with his wife's father, him blaming him for not being there or protecting her or whatever. You know, like there, it could have just been cleaner. All this stuff could have been cleaner. And then this moment, I think, would have resonated as well as whatever that moment would be at the end would have resonated to each other. And in this case, this moment does not pay off at all when he goes to visit his father at the end of the movie. Yeah, and neither does Rose Byrne's revelation about how her mom told her the exact day she's going to die, because if I knew the exact day I was going <laughs> to yeah. die, I'd be all like George Clooney in Tomorrowland trying to stop that shit from happening. I mean, like, <laughs> I just know if I knew the day I was going to die, I couldn't keep it together as well as this mother, a single mother raising this you know adorable daughter. Well, I feel like going back one step to what Tobin said about sort of the, the revelation at the end, or him visiting the father at the end i feel like he goes to the father at the end just because there's nobody else left like rose byrne is dead by that point his son is gone his wife has been dead there's just nobody else like i guess he could go to ben mendelson but like yeah. but, but, just... but if, in, in our in the alternate version of this movie there would be somebody else to go to is what i'm saying like that's true you know what i mean at this moment here in the car with rose would resonate more at the end if the end connected to this in some way and it just doesn't and so the movie has like like I say, three different tracks. It, it would be cleaner if they only had... I think it could still be as complex as it wanted to be. I can think of a lot of movies. Um, um, you know, I've already mentioned Pi. You can talk about Sunshine. You can talk about, you know, sci-fi movies that, that, that have... that get very complex, but, but at their heart are very simple stories. And this movie is just a little bit too complicated. You do have to give it credit for not trying to force a love story between Rose yes. and Cage. Because that would have been truly terrible. <laughs> yeah, no Diane Kruger effect on display in this one. No, she, I think she's a really she's one of the best female characters we've had I think in a Cage Club movie somewhat recently. Mm. I mean, even in, in sort of a movie with too many ideas, I think they at least have her character down pretty well in terms of yes. her damaged backstory and like why she is the way she is and also giving her something to do, like just even if it's just getting closure, it's like an attainable thing that she can go yes. after. I really just at least appreciate her being in the room you know, with Cage on screen for half of this time because like they really could have just sidelined her and and they made an effort no you're totally right she would have been trying to figure this stuff out one way or another not about the numbers but about dealing with her mom and and the day she's gonna die and all that stuff like she has things to wrestle with whether or not cage is in the movie and that alone makes her a step up from some of the other female characters <laughs> that we dealt with. a step up from maggie gyllenhaal yeah. um, you know i was gonna say it, but yes yes and so this is when they go back to Lucinda's trailer. They go back to Rose Byrne's mom's trailer. They find that there's the 3-3. The three, three, and this is kind of like a gimmick. She's like, oh, Abby used to do this too. She used to write numbers and letters backwards. It's just like, all right, like that's like, there's got to be a better way to get there. But all right, it, it got us there. You know why I don't like that immediately is because then some of the threes on the code could have been E's. You know, like that is a little messy too. Well, I feel like it, they, they look more like E's than threes. True, true. Okay. Kids very often do write their letters backwards and it's less common for the numbers i think to be written backwards is it genetic though no <laughs> <laughs> no I'm not, I'm not trying to defend it i'm not trying to defend it so they go there and they find the trailer and they find a bunch of black rocks just like they're they find a bunch of rocks that look like the one that caleb got earlier and they know that they're sort of getting close to something and then in maybe the most terrifying moment of the movie they find scratched into this table or scratched into this wall everyone else, everyone else, everyone else, and just like, oh, no, like, it's not a single thing, like, everybody is going to die. And at this point, you know, this thing's basically been bulletproof. There's no way that this list has been wrong. Like, is there, is <laughs> yeah. there anything that Cage can do to, like, 
prevent this from killing everybody on Earth. And this one was one of the cool things about this movie is that the answer turns out to be no. We, I think, in this kind of movie, in a Hollywood commercial mainstream studio movie, we expect the answer to be yes. We expect, you know, Bruce Willis to save the planet in Armageddon. You know, like we expect that, that our hero is going to be able to stop the whatever this this extinction event is and the fact that he can't is kind of cool like I, that's again it's another great idea in here also how x-files was this part of the movie where they're in this house with the rocks and the guys coming to the car like it just was and and the, and, and the beams of the flashlights like it just well, there's so many flashlights yeah, yeah it was just so x-files to me i really thought this was cool I, I i had guessed that the double e's meant extinction event but i guess this works better in a way everyone else is a little more specific because we've been numbering people so at least he knows like it's referring to people the one thing i kind of gleamed off the commentary with the director is that that's kind of one of the reasons that he was into this script is because the world actually does end and there is no Bruce Willis to save the day, right? Like he thought it was just very sort of counter to what the audience would expect. That was part of the allure of this uh, project for him. And and I got to say like, yeah, good for him getting this through the system (laughs) somehow (laughs) because I have a feeling the final scene may have something to do with it. And I wonder if that final scene was always intended to be there or if it was, you know, some kind of deal made in order to get, like, the destruction of the entire world. (laughs) But we get it, you know, and I can't really recall many other films that have done this. Can you imagine if The Aliens is, like, a studio note? Like, we we need a happy ending. Like, figure that out. And their happy ending (laughs) is, like, is aliens that, like, save everybody? They're like, well, that's not really exactly what we had in mind, but, like, I guess it works. I could so see that happening. That that I can I could definitely see that happening. Yeah, because we love this. We love all this, but it needs to be happy at the end. <laughs> Figure it out, you know. This is when the movie, like, I guess really when we find everyone else, like, this is when the movie really turns on the creepy. The Whisper People are basically on screen for the rest of the movie. The kids are talking about the Whisper People. They're like, they said we can go with them. Like, why don't we just go with them? Like, why are we going to hide in caves? Like, we can just go with them. And it's like, because they're creepy spirits who don't talk, who breathe light out of their mouth. <laughs> yes, yes, why would you want to go with them? Yeah, Joey, I was starting to think of City of Angels, and it's like the angels are revealing themselves now at this point at the end of the world. Well, now that Armageddon is upon us, and it's like, oh, uh, I thought Left Behind was coming in a few more movies. It's like, I wonder who's going to end up Left Behind on, on this cinder. One thing that was kind of interesting, too, is is Cage, like, chases down one of these alien creature guys, we're not sure, the Whisper Man, and he's like, you know, who are you? What do you want? And the alien opens his mouth, and just, like, a huge flash of blue light comes out yeah. of him, you know, not quite unlike the aliens in The World's End. That's kind of baffling. Like, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to understand more of or less of at that moment, and it just kind of feels like, okay, I don't know. Uh, what did you guys think of his attempt at communication? I don't know if it's communication. I think it might be just intimidation. But why would he be... I mean, uh, it's like, what bothers me is that the aliens want this guy's son, so you would feel like they try and not present themselves as such a threat, but I don't know. <laughs> well, again, it goes it goes back to that idea that maybe like they're, they, don't, they don't need to like prove themselves because they know in this future that if there is determinism, like, hmm. Caleb's always going to go with them, no matter whether they're yeah. nice or mean. No, this is, the, this is it. This is another one of these moments 
moments that you see someone having this cool idea for how these guys are going to look, what they're going to do. Oh my god, he opens his mouth and this light comes out, and now we have to figure out a reason to put it in the movie. You know, or, or they just write that scene like, I love it, I don't know what it means, but I'm going to keep it. There are moments like that that while they might work in the moment, they, they just don't hold up under scrutiny. It could have been cool if they gave him like a short glimpse of his future or of his son like safe somewhere so that he's got some kind of understanding that they're doing something good for the rest of the film as opposed to outrunning the sun. But it, yeah, I guess it also kind of is like you know, blinding him and it is kind of a clue if you really want to stretch. You no, know, I think you're totally right. You're onto something. Again, as we, re- re- as we rewrite this movie, you can imagine a version where what he shows him is something about his wife. His wife for just a, a split second being happy, being you know free, being at peace, whatever it is. If we're re- rewriting the movie that way, bring it back to that. So what, what they're... And, and he won't understand why he's seeing it and it will still be creepy, a creepy moment but it'll also be a moment where we realize they might not be so bad or they might not have ill intentions, you know like you could have you could have walked that line I think, maybe maybe that's what it is, you're right, maybe it's a missed opportunity. So next up is the observatory right? I guess like getting to the observatory, there's a lot of just like depressing talk that like Rose Byrne, like can't believe her mom's right, she's like Abby's all I've got, Kate just feels helpless, like Everybody's just like, oh, well, like now we know that everybody's going to die. Like, there's nothing we can do about it. Like, what do we do next? And they go back to, I guess, the school, right? Is that is that observatory at MIT? Is it part of the campus? I think it's part of the campus, but it's located somewhere else in Massachusetts. Uh, I'm not sure. Right. Yeah, it's where it's where Ben Mendelsohn works, right? Like, it's or is it or is it where Cage works? I don't know. Anyway, oh, yeah. yes, Cage is an astrophysicist, but I think Mendelsohn is the is he? astronomer. Yeah, he's a or cosmologist, I think. Right? I, uh, whatever it is, it's a. It's I a... took him to be like a Michio Kaku type guy, right? Like a theoretical physicist, almost even where he wrote a couple books and appeared on talk shows. And so, yeah. So it turns out that this solar flare that is going to obliterate Earth was something that Cage predicted years ago or months ago or however long ago. By this point, like Ben Mendelsohn's there and he just is like, you know, who do we tell? Like, all right, now I'm, I'm on board now. Like, I wasn't an hour ago, but I'm on board now. I know that we've got the proof now. Who do we tell? And Cage is like, they already know. Like, if yeah. if I know, they know. Like, there's nothing we can do. Like, we're, we're sort of screwed, dude. Remember that paper on extrasolar activity I published? Yeah, sure I remember found evidence of a series of super flares from a star in the outer Pleiades region. Right? Ratings were off the chart. We were both wrong. The numbers are a warning, but not just to me or any random group. They're a warning to everyone. Okay, you're officially scaring the shit out of me right now. A super flare in our own solar system. A 100 micro tesla wave of radiation that would destroy our ozone layer, killing every living organism on the planet. We have to let everyone know. We have to call the NOAA. They already know. The announcement will come anytime now. I thought there was some purpose to all of this. Why don't I get this prediction if there's nothing I can do about it? How am I supposed to stop the end of the world? Yeah, I was so happy he said that because I was wondering the same thing. Like, this is going to go nationwide. Like, call the news, call the reporters. And, like, I just didn't need that to happen in this movie. So I was so thankful that he was just like, no, like, 
obviously they're just not telling us. It's a cover-up. Yeah, it's true. And you have to wonder about, as we speculated, what the studio executives thought when they get to this page of the script. And you're, and you're, and, and I don't mean to badmouth studio executives. Like uh, anybody reading the script are, is going to expect the Bruce Willis ending, right? It's going to expect they're going to at least try to save the world or save themselves or, or <laughs> you know, a, a change destiny or whatever it is. And the fact that at this moment they say, "Yep, nope, can't. Like, there's nothing we can do." And 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 the government already knows, and we're not going to get whisked away by some helicopter to some top secret whatever like i think it's it's kind of refreshing as depressing yeah. as it is it's kind of refreshing yeah it's not roland emmerich right like there are no right. works no one's gonna save the day and and what i really like about it is this is how i like my sci-fi it's scary you like these are those hidden conspiracies where the government knows and is gonna save themselves the moment at the end when the national broadcast system goes off the air or they have the guy come on with the special report this is not a test like all that stuff is like great atmosphere and that's the kind of stuff i like so i love this moment in the room where it's just like yeah we're doomed and what i also like about this part is that like their best option is to go hide in the cave and i love how cage plays this at roseburn's like oh look there's these caves i know about that nobody else knows about like we can go hide there and he knows and you can see that he knows that like it's pointless but he's just like yeah like that might work like he (laughs) wants to he wants to be kind to her even though he knows like no matter what they do like they're they're done for one thing we haven't talked a whole lot about in here is Cage's performance. You know, th- this is not a movie that, that allows you a lot of great acting moments, either either high or low. He's been good in the whole movie. You know, it's, it's not that it's generic. I mean, he's been fine. And this moment, to me, is one that I really do remember in terms of his performance, where he has to sell us on the fact that he knows that, there's, that no cave is going to save them. And even if it did... It's going to kill every other living thing on Earth. There's nothing to eat. Like this is it's not this is not going to be a hospitable planet. It doesn't matter how deep your cave is. And yet he he wants her, as you say, to feel like there's some hope. He wants to give her some hope, even though he's resigned to this. And I think he plays that beautifully. Yeah, I definitely agree. You know, this is kind of a hard movie to quote unquote act in. You know, I mean, there's just lots of special effects. There's lots of storylines. There's lots to keep straight. I could see an actor having a hard time getting through this material. And I think it's just a testament to Cage and his stamina as an actor to be able to pull this off, you know, as well as he can. I I feel like a lot of guys would totally screw this way back, you know. Like I, I think he his performance is actually elevating this material in a way, you know. Like he's delivering some crazy lines, but they're coming across believable, you know. He's in these unimaginable situations, but I believe him, you know. And and he's even going to make this phone call to his dad and and sort of try and do this little reconciliation, and even in that call he's not even like apologizing necessarily and like he plays that really well too yeah i gotta give him a little more credit for what he's doing here i have a prophecy it's about to be proven accurate i need you to respect it and receive it as the truth this heat we're experiencing isn't going to get better it's going to get worse much worse I need you to get Mom and Grace and any supplies you can and get below ground tonight. The basement, the the sewer, the tea, just get as deep as you can and as fast as you can. And uh, that will keep us safe from this heat. I don't know that, but we have to try, right? Uh, I'm sorry, John, but I'm afraid I'm not going anywhere tonight or any night. I appreciate your concern, but if if it's my time, it's my time. I'm uh, 
ready whenever the good Lord calls me. That's true. There's not an unbelievable moment from him, right? Which, as you say, maybe I'm not giving it enough credit. In a movie like this, multiple personality as this is, to believe that he's the same guy from scene to scene yeah. and that he's being in truthful in any of those moments, like a, he's he's maybe holding the film together along with the sort of scene to scene directing as as much as anything else. And I th- I think that that's that shouldn't be underestimated. Maybe I think one real great benefit to this movie is that all the characters are competent that they all are good at what they do, they all sort of are firm in their beliefs, and even if their characters as a whole are kind of a mess, I think each of them works individually. They all have a certain path that they're going to follow. The Cage is the scientist who knows what's happening. He's going to try to figure out if there's a way to stop it, and if not, he's going to be with the people he loves. Rose Burns looking for closure, and they're all consistent in what they do. And that's the most important thing, that every action they take is believable, and even if, like we were saying earlier, you know, if it, it would be better if they were condensed into a couple different characters or whatever, I think that each character's journey makes sense. Agreed. Uh, also and, agreed. Sorry. <laughs> and, so, and so as this is happening, right, this is when like, they sort of get a little differing of opinions, that Cage is trying to figure out, I guess, where to be saved, maybe? Like, we were talking about this earlier, that this is when he goes into, like, possessed mode, he goes back to the school, and he steals the door, and he goes and starts sanding the door, and, like, Rose Burns like, well, what about the caves? He's like, the caves aren't going to help us. She just wants to do her best, like, sort of motherly instinct, right, protect these kids, and he, this sort of, I guess, man of science, is like looking for the answers. They they split up here, and even though they're not on the same page, I think this is when the movie's sort of firing on all cylinders. Like I was kind of just saying, like what they're doing here fits their characters so well. Hey, let's get back to the car now. Kayla. John. Where are you? We're in Westford. I'm sorry, I, I had to do this for Abby and for Caleb. I'm, I'm taking them to the caves. I found the numbers. They're the location of your mother's mobile home. That's where we've got to go. Please. I know how it sounds. You want us to head toward the place where this is supposed to happen? Are you insane? It's a chance we gotta take or we're all gonna die. Stay where you are. I'll be right there. No, if we go to the caves, we have a chance. You said the sun can't reach that far. The caves won't save us. Nothing can. The radiation will penetrate a mile to the Earth's crust. Do you hear me? Our only shot is to go where the numbers want us to go. It's what no, we're meant I, to do. I don't believe you. I'm taking the children. We have to save the children. Don't you move, Diana. Caleb is my son. Yeah, I suppose you're right. I, the movie sort of lost me in this section a little bit and then got me back at the end, or, or at least in a, few, in a couple scenes. I, I don't know why. I've, I've not been able to fully wrestle with why I wasn't fully buying. Maybe it's maybe it's because uh, even though Rose Byrne does, is given something to do, she spends a lot of the next couple scenes just sort of screaming. You know, I did not, I did, did not believe her, but... I don't know. I, this this little section going to get the door and and her kidnapping his child and driving off with them. I I was not entirely with it, and I'm not I'm not fully sure why. I'm not being articulate about it, but I I, I wasn't fully there. Here's what I kind of like about what's happening. I like that they split up. We're gonna sort of follow these two possible outcomes like it kind of is you know they want to try and beat determinism right they're going to try and have it both ways in the movie i feel like okay rose bird's going for the cave and nick cage is going for whatever we'll find out the coordinates and but i do agree that she sort of goes from zero to crazy and it's not quite believable if she had been more disturbed earlier and was cracking Uh and you know at this point was just full-fledged then i'd buy that she would just like kidnap these kids latch onto the idea of these caves and go in her own direction 
direction. It feels too convenient, but I gotta say, I do like the idea that they do get him up to split up for a little while, and I do like that. Well, I'll play devil's advocate here, because why not? Here's how I think it could work. We never see Rose Byrne sort of breaking down earlier we see her sort of as like this put together woman who sort of is like is rational and like you know has things to do and has a purpose and whatever but we also get the sense like we were talking earlier that she was raised in kind of like this like broken disheveled environment that her mother was crazy maybe like this is just the breaking point like we don't ever see it on screen and i agree that maybe we saw one if we saw one scene where she started to break down and she was like starting to lose her mind maybe then her stealing a car kidnapping the kids and then like grand theft auto a couple scenes later at the gas station like maybe that would make sense more in terms of like her character arc I can totally see her, like, doing whatever and just sort of not thinking rationally here because everything is falling apart that, like, 30 or 40 years of her crazy mother actually being right, now she knows, like, if her mother was right, that means that she's going to die tomorrow. She's just got to do something. And I can just see her whole world crumbling down around her. And while I think that we could have seen more of something on screen, I believe that she's being... I I can totally see why she's being crazy here. Maybe what it is for me is that we've just come from a few moments that we talked about where where they sort of give up, where they're they're not going to go try and save the world. And and that felt very original and fresh and probably more human than what we see in a lot of Jerry Bruckheimer production. So then maybe what I'm thinking is like, oh God, now it becomes a car chase movie. And even though the chase does not go where in my deepest fears expect it to go like it ends up being more interesting at the moment when she takes off with the kids maybe just to me it felt like oh now we're stepping back into a little bit more of a cliche not not her necessarily or her actions or her character but just the fact that we have to we have to go on a, on a chase now well it's also not a mid to late 2000s cage movie if a car doesn't get absolutely destroyed by another car <laughs> or something seriously and like that, another that out was... of nowhere and that was great. I love that moment. I thought that were, were, you were talking about more than where she gets T-boned, yeah, but yeah, she gets that, side, was, yeah, yeah. that was it's awesome. Like, <laughs> it's like more prevalent than Peaches or The Beach, <laughs> you know? Like, all of a sudden, in all these Cage movies, people are just getting demolished in car accidents, blindsided. It's like we've lost the red sports car and have just instead picked up... Thankfully, we haven't seen a red sports car get demolished like yeah, this. Like, that would sort of be the <laughs> ultimate cage <laughs> That'll, like, yeah, that is, last like, movie. <laughs> right, right. That's the thesis statement right there. <laughs> what kind of doesn't work here also is that the aliens take the kids from Rose Byrne. Yeah. In a way, it doesn't give Cage his due. I feel like he's the guy who should deliver the kids to the aliens. You know, like, it shouldn't just be a place that they went previously, that the coordinates should be a new place and something symbolic or significant, and he needs to hand them over. It made me chuckle when the aliens get in the car with the kids and then peel out. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it just it just felt like, oh my god, now you're just fully humans? Like, I, I, I... The movie didn't really have me back until she get to until her car got hit and then i'm like okay this is not going everywhere i thought it was gonna go but sort of up until then it feels convenient maybe that's what it is some of it just feels convenient but i am i was cool with these strangers just standing around whispering i did sort of have a problem with them driving cars and things like that yeah because, exactly like, Right? Not enough limitation. Maybe they're just projections of things, and we come to find, like, at the coordinate, there's their actual selves, like, them themselves, like, in their bodies and things like that. So it's a little too much for them to do. Well, not to go back to the Kardashev scale and the thing I don't fully understand, but if they have complete control of the universe, I can see them driving cars. I mean, <laughs> come on, like, they can drive cars. Well, but, but, but no, if they had complete, complete control of the universe, they wouldn't need to drive cars. That's the point. They need to make it look like Cage has a chance and Rose Byrne has a chance to save them. <laughs> 
Um, well, that's yeah, the other I, thing. Uh, With complete control of the universe, you could transport every human on the planet to someplace new. What, well, yeah, just stop I the feel, sun. <laughs> but I feel like that's not like what they want to do. I think that they're just. I don't know. Except, I don't know what their purpose is. That's the problem. We don't know. And 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 or or more no more to the point. I think it's that I fear that the filmmakers don't know. Yes, they, because they don't, listen they don't to us, really know. Because listen to us, like, we have all these ideas of what it could be and, you know, are willing to land on one and say, this is it. So it's frustrating that the people who made the film won't do that and it leads me to believe they can't do it because they don't know themselves. But I think this goes back to what Tobin said at the very top, that this went through, you know, three rounds of screenwriters. So it's like if Tobin wrote this movie, and then you wrote this movie, and then I wrote this movie, all different ideas, and then even if we each have our own vision for the movie, ultimately, like, what it becomes in the end is just, like, this sort of soupy, chaotic mess. Hopefully we just get someone really good to direct that script, and (laughs) the best it could be is watchably enjoyable. And I guess what we get at the end here is watchably enjoyable, though, right? Like, where Cage meets up with these aliens in the woods, and they kind of shed their human exteriors, and they give the kids rabbits? Like, it's kind of like a bit of Noah's Ark, a little (laughs) bit of rebirth? I don't know, there's a lot... I guess there's a lot of, like, religious iconography that could go here, if it is sort of associated with Easter, even though Easter Bunny is not necessarily Christian. That's why I shouted out, because it feels like the kitchen sink. Why are they even holding anything? Are they bringing other animals on the Ark with them? Is it an Ark? Questions about it. I think... Okay, so... Okay, so here's... Let's let's break this down. Let's, let's, Let's break down what's happening here so these four aliens these four whisper people ostensibly and this is all sort of guesswork because the movie doesn't tell us and i think it's intentionally not telling us but as you guys were just talking about maybe the filmmakers don't know themselves so ostensibly these four whisper people were tasked to get caleb and abby and bring them to this garden of eden planet when they bring them there with these two rabbits we see a bunch of other spaceships and so maybe all those other spaceships also have other kids and maybe each of those other kids have, like, maybe there's kids with cats, and maybe there's kids with dogs, and maybe there's but kids tigers? with tigers. What? So like, who knows? They're like a, a Nicolas Cage Chinese counterpart running around Hong Kong with his kid, like, decoding another thing found yeah. in a time capsule? That... Maybe. <laughs> I also feel like this would be on the news, you know? There are ships in orbit. The world is coming to an end. We don't really get any of that either. Well, I mean, there's not a, it's not on the news in Massachusetts or New York. Like, the aliens are sort of subdued there. It's not like they're being very right. yeah, out and about about it. what's and then, happening in Australia. And then as soon as they are sort of obvious about it, the news is too preoccupied by the fact that the world is ending. They don't care about aliens. You know what I mean? Like, it's just... I, th- yeah. I don't think that... Like, I, I think that's okay. Yeah, I, I liked when the ship went away and you saw the other ships there, too. Because I was like, what? You, the whole world's going to be repopulated by these two kids? Like, this is, this is <laughs> Blue Lagoon, you know? But then the fact that there were others, I, I did sort of like that. It's funny. I With the rabbits, I went to Alice in Wonderland. I went to this... The white rabbit's going to lead them into this new... Through the looking glass kind of thing. When they shed their skin and they look like angels it just i don't know i mean am i the only one who thought they looked like angels i mean i no, no. think it's think they're supposed to but they yes, also look yes. like robots with brains in them too they're really going like let's like throw it all in a blender maybe it's all from <laughs> the same origin this is actually to me kind of interesting one of the things that they learn in um, lucinda's house 
or her trailer or whatever from Rose Byrne is that she would stare at this picture of the prophet Ezekiel staring up at the heavens, right? And there's the sun in the middle of it and all that. And they don't really go into this, but there's there's kind of a sort of a famous book, and maybe not really famous, a kind of famous book from the sev- 1970s called, uh, uh, I think it was called The Spaceships of Ezekiel, written by a guy who worked, he was a chief of one of the NASA's system branches. And he wrote this book. There are moments in the a book of Ezekiel where Ezekiel talks about being picked up by these chariots and whisked around at, at enormous speed to various places around the, the Earth or the known Earth at the time. And there's been, you know, uh, sort of crank speculation for years that maybe this was some kind of, you know, visitation from aliens, right? Um, the way that these things are described with the lights and the and the way that the angels are described and the and all that. These craft are sort of are sort of described. This guy wrote this book and using his NASA experience tried to draw what these things would actually look like and they came out looking kind of flying saucer-ish, you know? Mm. Um, there, there is a history of this kind of thing, of looking back into any technology what's that phrase about any technology sufficiently advanced will appear like magic and so they're, they're playing with that here in a pretty direct way. Anybody who knows of that book or has or has watched any of those alien history channel alien tv shows would have come across this at one point or another that this this is not new territory and they're kind of i think i feel like with the end they're mining that here pretty explicitly i think it works because why not i mean in a way (laughs) like let's go there they have dropped a bunch of it right we have been talking about faith and science and the war between it and here we come to the revelation uh that they're one in the same you know and i like kind of like that i like that and this is really the only way to make that point they're cool looking and everything and i I go with it i guess that's the big thing like just why not like we've already gotten so many other things in this movie like why not have crazy ethereal light being aliens whisking kids off to another planet why not it just sort of makes sense in this movie that this is the kind of thing that's going to happen if you have fully given up on this movie already you won't buy this and it does and you know like the, the movie's just not for you and if you have sort of gone scene to scene and allowed some of the craziness and some of the stuff not craziness if you'd allowed some of the stuff that doesn't quite add up just to not add up you could just sort of relax into the sort of wonder of this you know and i and i think that that's where i was at watching this i'm like oh yeah okay i can sort of see how you're trying to make all, all this all come together and i can see how it could be done a lot better but i'm just going to enjoy it here and i think that that's probably the only way to sort of like the scene but if you have not liked the movie up until this point this scene's not going to make a, a convert of you Maybe one of the only things that it's not ambiguous about is that these things are, in fact, aliens, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, they get into these giant crystal ships and sail away across the skies. As the kids are gone, like the ki- it's sort of sad for caves that, you know... Like, it's time to start over. They've chosen us. But, you know, guess what? Only the kids can go because only the people who have heard the call. And Cage's like, all right, I guess I'm just going to stay here and then go to my dad and sister who have barely been in the movie and just hug them while the <laughs> fire envelops the earth. It's so sad for Cage, but I guess he's kind of okay with it that he just wants his son to be safe or his son to be sort of have a future. And he knows that he's doomed, but his son is safe, so he's going to go with his family. I don't know, like, it feels like that ending... We were talking earlier about how the ending in terms of the Adam and Eve planet, maybe, is, like, could be, like, a student, like, you know, happy ending. That happy ending that we get before the family dies, like, that just feels cheesy to me. I don't like that. I don't like them hugging... Oh. And I guess we were talking about that earlier, about how in a better movie, Cage would have someone to go to. Do they really need to hug and like just sort of embrace one another while the fire envelops them? 
I didn't buy that at all. And, and as much as I, it's hard to say you like seeing flames envelop Earth. Like, I, I don't like that. But I thought it was, you know, by Kosei, it's cool imagery. And I think they prolong it as they prolonged every, all the other sort of horrors in the movie. Like, they really go for it in terms of the block by block, the sort of fires taking over everything. But I but I totally agree. I, I did not get the, you know, rush of sadness when he's embracing his family or the sense of redemption or, or whatever. And, and it made me also think, it made me want to ask you guys a bit, a bit earlier in the movie when he lets Caleb go or tells Caleb to go do you, would you have sent your son with those aliens do you think I'd rather him go with them than die on earth I'll put it to you that way <laughs> I would rather go with them so if my son has the chance to go then yeah I think so if behind door number one is definitive death and behind door number two is maybe death but also maybe some kind of life like you have to kind of give him that hope right well, but you don't know that for sure the yeah, world's going to end. Know. You know what I mean? Like, that, this is where it comes down to faith. He has to have faith that this is the right decision, which is where the movie's trying to come down in, in the end with him. I think in a better movie, it would have been a little bit more of an agonizing, <laughs> an agonizing yeah. choice. And, and, maybe, and maybe as in our rewrite earlier, if, if when the alien had opened his mouth and the white light had come out, if Cage had seen his wife, that she was at peace, I think that would have been maybe the one step more I needed to really feel like, yeah, let your kid go. But, but I don't know. I, I had kind of a hard time with that moment. I'll tell you what I kind of like going on here at the end like i don't think you could have just like ended the movie when the kids go off in space and he's lying there on the ground like i don't think i think you needed to show they got to show the world end and i like this lead up i mean yeah he lets the kid go maybe he needed to struggle more with that acceptance but i like this resignation to the end where he sees the, the slow motion and the rioting in the city and stuff yeah it's a little contrived but it looks great in that final moments he's alone and i i kind of just took it as he was looking for his sister not necessarily his parents at that time so like he gets to find her and the one thing i do like here is his dad says to him this isn't the end cage says to his dad i know i really bought that moment even if it was a struggle to get there because it's like a confirmation of why he sent his son away right that acceptance like there's that chance somewhere out there my son is alive my seed right my space seed (laughs) space (laughs) jesus perhaps who knows at this point and he's out there and he's gonna survive and that's a part of me and i will live on so we got there is what i'm thinking (laughs) it's like okay (laughs) this is that sort of moment i needed boy was it the journey (laughs) but i didn't tear up but i bought it for me the actor playing the dad was so smug in every scene well the two scenes (laughs) he was in like i just wanted i didn't want him to punch him but i want i i don't know i felt like i didn't want him to win you know it feels like he wins in kind of a way and maybe that's just me not turning you the other cheek or whatever but i don't know i i I see what you're saying though i do see what you're saying and it is it does seem to me at least like cage believes or is trying to convince himself that he made the right decision but he does seem more at peace there for sure any other thoughts about knowing anything that we didn't cover i know we sort of covered a whole lot we kind of rewrote most of the movie and picked most (laughs) of it apart any other things that we didn't get to that you wanted to make sure we mentioned only to say that this movie gets an a for ambition for all the problems that it has and we've i think feel like we've we've picked it apart more than maybe not more than it deserves but it, it may not have accurate accurately reflected how much i enjoyed watching scene to scene in this movie i really did i really did and i would be curious to watch it with the director's commentary mike i think that would be a an interesting experience it definitely goes for things that i was not expecting this movie to go for and i appreciate that like i feel like in today's hollywood society hollywood environment whatever and i know this is several years old studios are so content with just like like it's sort of something that I just wrote about for National Treasure 2 that like studios are so content 
content with doing the same thing, like doing the things that make money, that even when movies, they don't necessarily work, like earlier this year, like Jupiter Ascending, like I love that movie, even though it's bad because like it's this bold idea that like got made. This movie, if you describe knowing, is insane. Like it doesn't make sense, <laughs> and there's things all over the place. But the fact that somebody somewhere, some producer was like, you know what, like we're gonna go with it. Like I, I want to see like more like even if stuff's bad or yeah. like not fully fleshed out. I just want to see more original stuff out there. Yeah, Joey, I totally agree, especially with what you had to say you know, about National Treasure. National Treasure 2 is like a copy of a copy of a copy, right? It's like a Xerox of a Xerox because National Treasure in the first place is aping things like Indiana Jones. National Treasure 2 is just National Treasure 1 again. It's bizarre. <laughs> and like It's exactly what you're saying. It's just like more of the same and more of the same. This is unlike any other film. It's, it's like an elongated Twilight Zone. It's almost like a season's worth of Twilight Zones like rolled into <laughs> one two-hour movie. I had a much better time watching it this time around than I did originally. I had a very adverse reaction to this film, especially that final moment when the kids are running toward the Tree of Life and the Garden of Eden and stuff. And like at the time, I just like gave the television the finger because I don't know if I was insulted or what my problems were, you know, <laughs> what I was dealing with. But this time around, I accept that scene. Like it makes sense. It doesn't feel tagged on. It feels like it belongs. If nothing else, for the fact that it went. That that step further and the entire film tries to go that step further it's not even content with being a run-of-a-mill sci-fi film you know it wants to try and maybe do too much but it's trying you know it's trying hard and and i definitely roll with it and i had a really good time watching it this time so thank you for joining us tobin this was a very long episode but you will be back before <laughs> too long with i think the next movie you're doing is the sorcerer's apprentice which isn't coming up for it's it's a couple movies down the road so you'll be back soon i can't wait i appreciate it guys so thank you for joining us for this movie. I think this is one of this is one of the last sort of big kind of blockbustery cage movie. So glad you could join us for this one. I'm so glad to be here. This is this is always so much fun. I'm, I feel like I talked your ear off a little bit, but I <laughs> I love I love it. I love it. It was so much fun. So for all things cage, you can go to cageclub.me. You can read our reviews, find past podcasts, follow us on Twitter, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. All things cage at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And that was Tobin Addington, and we'll see you next time on Cage Club.